you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, while you're turning there, we'll finish the chapter and we'll pick up in verse 17. But as we continue here in chapter 11, this is one of those passages that because of familiarity, we have a tendency to look at it and almost dismiss it. There are two things that Jesus himself both did and then passed on to the church. One of them is baptism and the other is communion. Those are the only two ordinances that Jesus himself passed along to the church. All the other things that make up a typical church environment or service are things that the church has adopted over the centuries, over millennia. And we've added in worship and we've added in uh, a message that is taught from God's word, which was obviously part of the beginning of the church as well. But as far as ordinances, things that we as the body of Christ have been told by the Lord Jesus, these things you need to do, we come to the ordinance of communion. And the reason that I say that is people generally take two extreme views of communion. One is we ought to have it at every single service. And while that's not inherently wrong, it's not necessarily bad, it does open the door for it to also be perfunctory and in some cases completely meaningless because it becomes like walking through the doors. And Jesus has passed along to the Apostle Paul the seriousness of this supper, what we call the Lord's Supper or communion, koinonia, the fellowship that we have because of what Christ did on Calvary's cross. And in doing so, the Apostle Paul is now going to quote the very same things that Jesus is quoted as having said by all four of the gospel authors. Do this in remembrance of me. But Paul adds something to this in light of the context of what he's been saying to the church at Corinth that to me is immensely important. And that is the supper is serious. And when I say serious, that does not always mean completely solemn because there's a seriousness to our joy, amen? Because I'm redeemed, I've been set free from the bondage of sin and death. That is a result of the cross as well. So it does not necessarily mean that one needs to always come to the communion table in a heap of tears. While that is not bad, it is not necessarily how everyone approaches the table. But the solemnity of the occasion must always be there. Because we are celebrating what Christ did for us by dying in our place and shedding his blood for the remission of our sin. The church at Corinth had turned it into something a whole lot less than that. And I think that is the reason that this passage to me remains important to the church. And so as we pick up and we read this passage, I want to encourage you to begin to prepare your heart because we're going to partake of communion. And some of you are going, well, it's not the last Sunday of the month. (laughs) That's the point. We don't ever want to just take communion because it's the last Sunday of the month. 
we don't ever want to just take communion because it's available. We want to take communion for the reason that Paul states and Jesus stated that we remember him. And so tonight we're going to remember the Lord and all that the Apostle Paul says here as we pick up in verse 17. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for these instructions. Lord, they're meaningful. They're purposeful. I believe they were willful by your spirit to remind the church that we can make sometimes nothing out of something and also something out of nothing. And Lord, we pray we'd have the proper balance, that we'd always come to the table. Lord, with grateful hearts, thankful hearts. Lord, with a focus on ourselves and not on others. Lord, that there be nothing between us and you. And so, God, we prepare, we prepare our hearts even now. We ask that you reveal if there's any wicked way in any of us, Lord, before we receive the bread, before the cup comes. Would you remind us of those things that stand between us and you? We bless you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 17, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. How would you like to get that in a letter to this church? When you guys get together, the body of Christ is actually worse for it. And that is, in effect, what the Apostle Paul is saying. He said, you guys have taken something that was intended to be good and holy, and in this case, it's actually two things. Because the early church, when they got together, they almost always had what we would call a potluck or a fellowship meal. Because the existence then was far more communal than it is in our day, when people got together, they would simply bring a little bit of food. The rich people would bring rich food, and the poor people would bring poor food, and they got together, and there was this division. The rich people would sit on one side of the room, the poor people on the other. And not only were they not sharing, they began to argue over the issue of the meal that they were serving before they even got to the Lord's table. And so there was an abuse of the worship service in that sense. And probably most of you have had an experience in your life, with, in your walk with the Lord, where there's been something that's gone on in your day and you know that you are not squared away with God. You don't have to say amen. But you know that there's something between you and the Lord. Maybe it was an attitude. Maybe it was an action. Maybe it's some conviction of something that's gone on in your life. Maybe it was some behavioral thing. Perhaps it's just something that you've been dwelling on that doesn't belong in the mind of someone who names the name of Christ. Something effectively that you've been redeemed from. Some sinful thought process or something that you have actually done that has shamed the name of the Lord and you bring it to church. And you wonder why your worship seems hollow. You, you wonder why the Lord seems distant. You wonder why the word at times doesn't seem to even make sense or apply to you. God's showing you those things not to condemn you, but to convict you, to bring you to that place to where you'll repent of them, 
and get squared away with him because he also hates the broken fellowship. It hurts him. It's not because he's simply angry with the sin. He knows that your relationship with him has been affected. It's been damaged. And so the reason you feel uneasy, the reason that your prayer life seems hollow, the reason that the word doesn't make sense to you is because you've got some business to do with God. He wants that vertical tunnel between him and you completely clear of debris. Up in the mountains every fall, we'd always have a handful of people who would get a chimney fire. And if you've ever seen one of these things, it's pretty crazy. Because what happens after year after year after year of you burning real wood in a real fireplace, which we can't do here in L.A., it's like forbidden almost. But in the mountains, you can do that. And inside of the chimney builds up all kinds of wood particles and partially burned bark and pine tar and all kinds of things. And if you don't occasionally clear that out... Oh, it can catch fire. And in fact, it sounds like a jet engine going off. And if you're fortunate and you have a metal line flue or a really good clay line flue, it'll just burn all the way top to bottom and burn itself out. But every once in a while, there'd be so much debris inside of there that all of that would collapse, fall back into the chimney, and into the living room it goes. Not a good thing. House burns to the ground. God doesn't want your house to burn to the ground because your chimney of praise and prayer is clogged. He wants you every once in a while to do the hard thing, get on the roof, grab that stiff round brush and clean the chimney out of everything that's in there. It's called repentance. It's called having an attitude of prayer towards the Lord. When you come to the table Lord, there's nothing. My chimney between you and me is clear. At this feast, this meal, the poor were being disregarded, the rich were being exalted, and they took what was intended to be good and turned it into something that was painful for an awful lot of people that were there. And that lack of unity in the body of Christ... Because sin doesn't just affect you, does it? Sin affects our families. Sin affects our children, our spouses, our extended family. can affect our neighbors. And ultimately, all sin leads to disunity between me and God, which will affect the unity that I have between me and other believers. A blessed church is a church that's Sinless in that sense. The more we're like Jesus, the less junk we got to clean up. And in this case, the church was just filled with all this stuff that was going on in their lives. And he says in verse 18, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Or there must also be factions among you. That those who are approved may be recognized among you. You see, you you guys have set up your own little Christian caste system. You know, the good people sit over here. It's like the, you know, the front row people or against the back row people. You know what I'm saying? 
And again, I, I'm not saying it's a problem here in this church, but I'm telling you, I've been in churches to where you can cut the division with a knife. You got the air conditioning people on one side and the suffering people on the other. You've got the people that think we should tear the bread. Then you've got the people that, you know, well, that's, oh, that's unsanitary. We need to have that cut. I've actually had people ask me if we wear gloves when we break the crackers here. Yes, we do. But people can become divided over all kinds of things. And all of a sudden, things that are almost meaningless become these gigantic distractions to what the Lord wants to do in the church. And in that sense, we should not dishonor the Lord. These people were coming together. They should have been sharing a meal. And instead of sharing a meal, they're sharing their ought with one another. They come in, they're looking at that, and and let me just be honest with you. Sometimes when I'm looking at you, I'm watching you look at people, and you're like, well, they're sitting in that section. I'm not sitting over there. I've actually seen people go to other sections. I've actually watched people get up and move because a certain person is sitting near them. That grieves the heart of the Lord. How can we go to the table of the love of God and have such foolish things in our hearts about other people for whom God's grace is also necessary for them to reach heaven? You know why I just said that, right? Because God's grace is the only reason we're all getting to heaven. Amen? So, so how dare we affect the church service with these things that are of this earth and unworthy, really, of our attention. And so Paul continues, and therefore, when you come together in one place in verse 20, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is hungry and the other is drunk. Now, while he's using a very specific example that was due at the time, to the, to the nature of how they conducted church. One could say the little things that divide us at times can become something that we cling to. Well, you know, she said something about me last week. Well, he, he did this. He actually got an usher's name badge. And mine's handwritten. His was printed on the computer. we can become divided over silly things for which Christ died. He died for our silly things too, you know. The things that divide us, things that sometimes get in the way of us and Jesus. And of course, when they were celebrating, they were actually celebrating a a, a Passover meal, a Seder. And just as Matthew 26 records the words of Jesus. So the Apostle Paul is is echoing that at this time as he speaks here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so when Jesus and the disciples ate a meal, uh, they sang the songs of ascent, the Hallel. They read scripture, they prayed. 
And then they began the Passover meal. And as Jesus was going through the meal, when they got to the, the, the Passover bread, the unleavened bread, there was a message to the bread, amen? We were once in bondage. You, you see, sometimes we make it so New Testament, we forget that this is an Old Testament example that pointed to Jesus. The firstborn were going to die. The blood was put on the doorposts, the lentils, the window ledges of the home. They didn't have time to bake their bread. They were in such haste to not be destroyed that they left in a hurry. And so they didn't leaven the bread. They didn't have time. They basically made tortillas. They made pita bread. No leaven. It's like, man, cook this. Let's get out of here. You see, he was saying, look, you were in bondage. And I set you free. You were going to die. And I saved you. You had no remedy for your own life. I brought you a remedy. And it was me. How dare we approach that meal with anything other than, Lord, you're right, I'm wrong. Forgive me. Clean me up. Now, admittedly, sometimes I come to communion, it's like me and God are pretty square. You know, it's like if I've prayed in the last eight seconds, I'm usually good to go. You know what I'm saying? We all have a way of allowing little things to get inside of our minds. So as they ate, they would have gone through that understanding of the the cracker. And Jesus pulls it out, pulls out this little piece, the Afrikomen, and he and he pulls it out, and it's this little piece that's left over after supper. The peace that was worthy of finding, that brings the most joy. And he would have broken that one. And then as he brings the cups, there were four of them. And so as a, from a Jewish mindset, the, the first cup was the cup of sanctification. It was the Kaddish. And then the cup of blessing, the Barakah, the, the cup that says, man, we are blessed beyond measure. Were the king's kids. And then Jesus would have gotten to the third cup, and it is there that begins the cups after supper. And so Jesus takes this third cup, the cup of blessing. He's gone over the cup of proclamation, the cup of sanctification. He takes the cup of blessing, and he says, this cup, this cup, is the cup of the new covenant. The only reason we're blessed is Jesus died for us. That's why we're blessed. We're not blessed because we come to church. We're not blessed because we know a bunch of other people who also go to church. We're blessed because Christ died for us and passed on that forgiveness of our sin. Amen? That's why I'm blessed. My sins have been forgiven. And I'm going to heaven. So Jesus says, this cup 
is a new covenant. It's not like the old covenant because the old covenant didn't do a thing with regard to forgiving the sin. It atoned for them. It put the sin away. It made so God was okay with it, but it was not yet forgiven completely. It was just simply dealt with. That's what the word kafar means. It means to cover. God just covered it. It wasn't erased. It wasn't forgiven. Justification had not been made. Only atonement. And so Jesus is saying as he implements this and Paul passes it along. He's saying, look, there's something that you're really so supposed to remember. He says in verse 22, what, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I, I can't, I, I do not praise you. He says, look, we gotta get this squared away. And so he says, look, what are we doing? What is it that we're remembering? For one thing, it's not just a church tradition. Notice verse 23. This is not just simply something most churches do. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night which he was betrayed took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, it's not just something we do at church because we have these nice fancy trays and a menorah. It's not just something that somebody jotted down in a book somewhere and said, if you're going to have a church, you need to do this. It's the way that Jesus said, this is what I want you to do to remember me. Because I don't ever want you to forget the reason that you actually can go to church. Because without Jesus, let's be honest, church is meaningless. It's meaningless. If we're just going to get together and talk about a philosophy of living, this is meaningless. But we're not talking about a philosophy. We're talking about truth. And the truth is God loves us, and he sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins to prove it. Amen? So Jesus said, when you do church, do this in remembrance of me. He couldn't praise their actions because it reminded them uh, of some flesh fest. It wasn't good. They were getting together for the wrong reason. And instead of celebrating the Lord's Supper, they were celebrating the division that had been brought into their midst because people couldn't get along. It was crazy. And by the way, this feast, communion had been going on in the church for at least 20 years, probably closer to 30. Because Paul is now in late age. So he says, do this in remembrance of me. The very thing that Jesus said to the disciples. 
People have all kinds of things that they think about during communion. And unfortunately, some of them lead people to wrong conclusions. There are those on this earth that believe that somehow the the bread and the cup, the wine, the juice, the bread itself literally become the, the body and the blood of Christ. Which to me is beyond my imagining because the Old Testament strictly forbade anyone from eating human flesh. And so Jesus being a Jew would never have encouraged anyone to do anything that led them to believe that they were actually eating his body and drinking his blood. So the doctrine of transubstantiation, Jesus himself would have never passed that along to the church. Some people believe in consubstantiation, which just simply is this, that somehow a spiritual thing happens and a spiritual work occurs And the spirit is now occupying both the bread and the cup. That also, to me, makes zero sense because the Holy Spirit is everywhere all the time, not just in some bread and the cup. Amen? So it would be unnecessary to have a doctrine that told us, well, it's only good if I bless it or if you pray over it because the Holy Spirit is then there. The Holy Spirit's God. The Holy Spirit's always everywhere. Amen? But it is one of the most beautiful symbols that I've ever seen. So there's a deep symbolism here. Because when Jesus shared these things with the disciples, he had not yet died. Amen? He had not yet been arrested. He had not yet been tried. He had not yet been beaten. He had not yet been crucified. He would not yet been put in the grave. He was very much alive when he did this the first time. And so now imagine the symbolism to the disciples as Jesus said these things. This is my body, Peter, James, John, Andrew. This is my body broken for you. And then within 24 hours, what happens? His body was broken. And he said, when you eat of this bread, I want you to remember what I did for you. Though they abandoned Jesus, most of them followed along at some eye-shot distance, at least for parts of of the final 24 hours of Jesus' life, and John actually made it to the foot of the cross. So when Jesus said, this is my body broken for you, they would have immediately been able to turn their attention to the beating that Jesus took, to the crown of thorns, the rod that he was struck with, the bag that was put over his head as he was punched in the face, as he was tied to that post in the middle of Pilate's courtyard, and that flagellum was taken to his back with bits of bone, Roman glass, lead shot, tied to leather thongs, seven to nine feet long, and he was lashed with it, and as the lashes wrapped around his front side, They would hook into his skin 
and then the person doing the beating would pull back on it, ripping his flesh completely off of his body. Jeff, remember what it cost to pay for your sin. You see, it's a little different when you think of it in that deep symbolism for which it stands. It actually has less symbolism to me if I just simply think, well, this represents his body. No, it represents his body broken for me, beaten for me, bruised for me, nailed to a tree for me. That's what he was asking them to remember. To remember what your sins actually cost. So when someone comes to the communion table and they're flippant about it, it's just some kind of religious act. It's something you do because it's the last Sunday of the month it's not actually doing what Jesus asked us to do. I, between you and me, I never feel worthy of taking of communion. Can I just be honest? Never. But what does happen is that peace that surpasses my own understanding that guards my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus and who I am in Jesus allows me to thank the Lord for him redeeming me from my unworthiness and taking his righteousness and putting it in my account. So please... Don't ever get to that place to where you come to the communion table and it's like, man, there's a ball game on. Can I just share with you? I've watched people get up. I've watched people who I know they know the Lord. I got stuff to do this afternoon. Jesus had something to do that afternoon too. Don't shame him. He paid the full weight, the full debt. He held nothing back, family. There was nothing left for him to endure. Verse 25, and in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You see, the old covenant was replaced. It was actually truly just simply made complete because the old covenant pointed to the new one. But in that sense, it was complete. It was replaced. God was now with his people. The Holy Spirit was now in his people before the only thing that they could look on every single year, late in the month of October, usually, that one day 
where for a few minutes the accounts were squared up. Atonement was made. But the whole rest of the year, the law reigned. The law reigned. They were still under the law. They still felt the weight of the law. They still felt the power of the law to condemn because the law condemns, amen? You read the Jewish law and you are a walking dead person because that's all the law can do. It can only point you to the fact that you got an issue with God. The law can't save you. All it does is point a finger at you and say, see, you failed. And so the Jewish people would do the best they could to try and take all of these 613 things that made up the law and one by one methodically, I'm going to square this away, I need to give a tithe of my mint and my cumin. I need to make sure that I didn't swallow a fly, a gnat with my wine because that had blood in it. I would be tasting blood and to eat something with blood in it was a problem for God. Can you imagine the the weight of the law? Knowing that the end of the law was judgment. And Jesus said, I'm giving you a new covenant. No more just atoning for it. No more blood of innocent animals dying. I'm going to square this away once and for all. It's one of the most beautiful things that we can think on as believers. Jesus ushered in grace. Unmerited favor of a holy God. And please use that word frequently and often. Every breath you take is in unmerited favor from a holy God. It's in grace. I still don't deserve what I have. I can never earn what I have in Christ. That's the beauty of the new covenant. Christ's blood has wiped away my sin. I am absolutely forgiven, past, present, and future. The I am died for me. The cross brought that to us, the cup that Jesus is drinking from, this cup that shouts blessing to us. The two ways that we remember. One, we look backward. Amen? We look backward. I do. I think most of you can remember what you used to be without Jesus. Amen? Anybody in here glad you aren't that anymore? Hallelujah. Amen? So when you're thinking of communion, we're supposed to look back. It's okay to look back. Just don't stay back there. You've got to take the other step, which is to look forward. Because I know where I'm going. Not because I've earned it, not because I deserve it, but Christ died for me. That's part of the new covenant. 
I get heaven. He got my sin. I get heaven. He got my unrighteousness. I get his righteousness in its place. Mind-boggling. What Jesus did for you and did for me at the cross. He goes on to say, how do we remember this? For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim. I love the word proclaim. It means to shout forth. It means to extol. It's as if something marvelous has happened to you. Have you ever seen the nutcases that win the publisher's clearinghouse? Every time they film them on camera, you know, they go completely crazy. They run down the street with a stupid cardboard sign. I'm going to get $20,000 a month for the rest of my life. And oh, yeah, by the way, 10,800 of its taxes. They're insane. At the end of the day, doesn't mean a thing. What profits it a man if he were to gain the whole world and lose his soul? So the way that we remember is by remembering that what happened to us is eternal. It fixes my future. Amen? I'm going to heaven. I may not win the publisher's clearinghouse. That way I won't have to be on TV and you guys won't have to be embarrassed. (laughs) I always tell people, well, you know, I'm hoping to win the lotto. Go, look, I got a problem. You can't win if you don't play. I don't play. I'm trusting Jesus. I could care less. We remembered the Lord. So this solemn celebration that we're about to participate in together, and I'm going to ask the communion team in a moment to begin to pass out the elements of communion. I want you to listen in at what the Apostle Paul says. You see, the reason he says this is because of what I just explained to you. If God's own son, God incarnate in human flesh, put off the glories of heaven and came to this earth and allowed himself to be beaten nearly to death, ultimately nailed on a cross and actually killed, then I think God takes the supper seriously, don't you? Because we've been told, remember Jesus in this. So from heaven's perspective, when we celebrate communion, God the Father is looking down on what we're doing and saying, that honors my son. That honors what my son did for Jeff. The attitude of his heart. The position that he's in with me. He realizes the seriousness.
For whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Does it strike a chord with you now? Maybe it didn't before. I hope it does now. I hope it does now. I hope it does now. So as we're sitting there with our little divisive things going on in our heart, as we're sitting there with open rebellion against God, as we're sitting there with sin that needs to be paid for because Christ has to pay the price for every one of your sins, including the ones you're going to commit tomorrow, next week, next month, and next year. When you're sitting at the communion table and you're pondering some sinful behavior you're not very cognizant of the body and the blood of Jesus. That's why it's serious. It's as if you're coming to the table and saying, well, I'd like to be square except for these 27 things. I'd like to be okay with you, God, except that I really don't want to reject this sin which I've told you I know that you know that it's wrong, and I know it's wrong, but I really like it. Guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. Let a woman examine herself. Let mankind examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. None of us should take of the cup in an unworthy manner. None of us. Now here's the beauty of this. You don't have to. Because if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from every last bit of of unrighteousness. Amen? You, you don't have to go to the communion table with a bunch of stuff in your chimney. You can go to the communion table completely clean, completely free, but you have to want to go there that way. And God knows when we're not being real. Now, is Paul teaching that you'll perish? And No, he's not. He's not saying that your salvation hangs on what you do at the communion table, but he is saying some pretty serious stuff. I can get the communion team to begin to pass out the elements. You're going to receive first the bread and the cup, and then the cup. Please hang on to both of them. And we'll pray together and partake together. But I want to share a couple of things with you. And in the meantime, begin to prepare your heart. Because see, sometimes I think that we kind of treat the communion table a lot like some of these people who flip houses in the South Bay. They don't actually fix the problems 
they paint it with some cheap white paint. They don't actually correct the issue. They put something in front of it so that you can't see it. And I'm asking you to not let that be you any longer. Don't don't try and cover it up. Jesus died for it. And you can simply give it to him and say, Lord, I am releasing this to you. I recognize it needs to be torn down in my life. There's no way to paint this wall and fix the problem inside of it. This wall has to be opened up and the plumbing actually has to be fixed. And maybe that's you tonight. And I'm not trying to put bondage on anyone. I'm actually trying to help you get closer to the Lord. Because you see, here's what happens. Eventually, you're going to go to sell that house. And the problem's still going to be there. You're going to go to cash the check on the money that was borrowed against the house that you actually didn't fix, and you're going to find out it's not sufficient funds. See, God wants to deal with these things in our lives. And so I'm going to ask you tonight, maybe you've never looked at the communion table this way. You have an opportunity to come completely clean with God. Completely clean. I can't tell you what your issues are. And I'm not asking you to tell everybody else what your issues are. But God does know what your issues are. And he has been waiting for you to simply say, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of painting over the same spot. I'm tired of trying to put some more drywall mud to fix what is a leak in the wall. And to that end, verse 29, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself for not discerning the Lord's body. And for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. And yes, the pain of unrepentant sin can kill you. The pain of unresolved issues between you and God can take your life. And I can tell you this is true because I've buried some of those people. I've watched people who won't do business with God cling to behaviors, cling to things in their life that eventually actually kill them. And I'm not trying to scare anyone in here. I'm simply saying maybe that issue or area of your life is actually causing something physical within you. Because bitterness does eat at your bones. It rots away at who you are as a person. Unforgiveness can cripple you. 
Bad habits can consume the goodness that's in your life. Outright sin destroys. It always destroys. Satan says, well, you need this. You need to self-medicate. Life's tough. Jesus is tougher. He is able. And through him, you are more than a conqueror. You can whip it. Jesus died so we could live, family. He died so we could live. He didn't die so you'd have to die for yourself. He died so you could live. He died so I could live. For if we judge ourselves, he says here, we'll not be judged. Isn't that simple? If we take a couple of minutes and just judge ourselves, if we do some business with God, if we just simply get honest, we're good. Because he's near to the downcast. He's close to the brokenhearted. He loves the humble. But the prideful, he's opposed to. I don't need God being opposed to me. I do enough stuff on my own. But when we are judged, we're chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. In other words, he's saying, look, I want you squared away so you're ready to go home. You're ready for those things that I want to do in your life. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home lest you come together for some judgment. The rest I'll leave and put in order when I get there. You see what I believe the Lord is sharing with us tonight. He wants us to have that peace. He wants us to know that when we walk away from the communion table, we're good to go. We're ready for what lies ahead. Because we can keep the stuff. We can keep the things that still bind us. Or you can let Jesus have them. Be free. Choice is yours. Choice is mine. To solve that, Paul gives us just a little bit of insight in verse 33. He says, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together, be patient and wait for each other. And so I want to take just a few minutes to wait on the Lord. And then we'll partake together. And I'm going to ask you to examine yourself. Do what Paul said here. Not to be condemned. But to give him whatever that last little thing is. That you know you need to give him. Maybe it's something between you and your spouse. Maybe it's something between you and a business partner or somebody at work. Maybe it's an area of your mind that has not really been fully given over to the Lord. 
Maybe it's some little thing. Maybe it's just a touch of greed. Maybe it's some worldliness, some carnal living. Maybe it's some words that need to be stricken from your vocabulary. Let's just take a couple of minutes and pray silently. And then we'll pray together and partake. We're reminded of the words of the hymnist. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the King of glory died. Jesus, we thank you for your body. Your perfect body, your beautiful body. Your body that was whole. Your body that served you for 33 years. It was torn apart by our sin. Ripped to shreds because we're sinners and we need a Savior. Lord Jesus, we honor you for the sacrifice you made for us. And Lord, we're asking you, we're begging you, place your righteousness in us. Thank you for forgiving our sin. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your holiness. Thank you that you're the king of glory and yet you stooped this earth to pour out your love on us. Thank you, Lord, for the little things that you've cleaned up even tonight in the lives of this church. Lord, we want to honor you going forward and so we repent of those things. We cry out to you, Lord, how we need your help. Lord, we failed you, but you're bigger than all of our failures. And so for your body, broken for us, 
we say thank you in Jesus' name. Let's partake together. Jesus, we thank you that after supper, after you'd shared what had happened to your body, you made it very clear that the path to blessing led through the cup of suffering, and you held nothing back. said it is finished it's done Jesus your blood was poured out for us and because of that the debt of our sin was paid the remittance was offered up and Father we thank you the words you uttered from heaven that the veil was torn and Jesus by your stripes we were healed and by your blood the debt of our sin was paid we remember you Jesus thank you for shedding your blood for us it's in your name we pray and Father unto you who is able to keep us faultless to deliver us into the heavenlies in Christ Jesus as the writer of Hebrews said can set us free from those besetting sins that keep us from running the race. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for loving us that much. Help us to love you in return with all that we have and all that we are. In Jesus' name.